Welcome to CTSNet Beat, a brand new podcast that aims to keep you up to date with everything that's new and happening in the world of cardiothoracic surgery. We've got an absolutely packed edition today. We're going to talk about the amazing EAX Moonshot, and I'll tell you about that later. The uh, latest from EAX, uh, Tavi and Mitroclip. We're going to look at the most popular talks at EAX. We're going to visit the Techno College. We're going to see an amazing new device for mini AVR. And away from EAX, we're going to talk about the scandal of Pectus in the United Kingdom. And finally, Adam Hansen in the April edition of the Annals this year has taught us about a brand new diagnosis, a completely new operation I didn't even know uh, existed, slipping rib syndrome, and yet completely fixable in about 10 minutes. So keep listening, and I hope you enjoy this episode of CTSNet Beat. But first, for you observant listeners, uh, I am not Dr. Nikki Stamp. So Nikki Stamp's going to be doing most of these podcasts. Uh, just to let you know about Nikki, we are so lucky to have her doing this podcast. She is a qualified cardiothoracic surgeon, been qualified six years, but that's not all. Uh, she writes for the Huffington Post. She's written two books, and she's even done a TV series called Operation Live. She writes for the Huffington Post, and almost uniquely, she has her own Wikipedia page. She's amazing. Uh, but she is so amazing, she's coming over to London in the middle of a pandemic, so we've given her a week off. So you'll you'll hear from her next week. So let's move to the EAX moonshot. What do I mean by the EAX moonshot? Well, Boris Johnson in the United Kingdom said he was going to have a moonshot of testing and increase the number of uh, testing by 17 times. And, uh, and everybody thinks that guy's crazy. But actually, this reminded me of the massive task that EAX had to do their conference this year. Now, I think we've all been affected by conferences that have been cancelled, and I'm sure we've all been in, logged into a few that have done them virtually. But really, they've just been a couple of hours, they've selected a couple of lectures, and that's it. But EAX just said, let's take this stratospheric. Oh my God, it was amazing. That's all I can say. It's phenomenal. They have created a virtual world. We were walking around Barcelona. We were checking in on different talks in Auditoria. There was even a chill-out zone. I could go to the stands and talk to industry. And oh my God, it was phenomenal. I could even change my clothes if I thought I was getting too hot and sticky with excitement. So phenomenal. Well done. Dominic Pagano, Patrick Myers, Rafa Sabada, and all the people that were involved in this phenomenal. I just take my hat off to you. So uh, 4,000 people went to this conference. They were registered. Uh, I hope you're one of them. Uh, if you're not, I'm not sure. I might have to check on this for you, but I think you might still be able to register uh, and go and have a look because there's an amazing media library. Also, if you didn't log in, go to EAX Live. They did this amazing one-hour TV program on YouTube hosted by this cool dude called Roy Shepard who took us through all the latest and greatest uh, uh, things going on that day. So, uh, And then in addition to 
the 4,000 uh, people they had, they had 600 allied health professionals, 600 nurses. So I think this is the world's biggest ever cardiothoracic surgery allied health conference. So hats off, it was amazing. So let's get into that conference. What did I see? So I walked in and uh, one of the best talks I heard was by, by Tom Wen from Texas. Uh, he was a invited speaker uh, about two talks that were looking at results after surgery after TAVI uh, by Thomas Modine and also results after surgery uh, after a mitra clip by Ketty Vitanova. First of all, he started by uh, setting the scene. We all know that Tavi's taken off, but I didn't really realise by how much it's taken off. In 2012, there were 4,000 procedures uh, in the STS database. In 2018, there were nearly 60,000 procedures in a year. There were only 62,000 of all Tavi, all AVR procedures in the US. So, so 2020, I'm sure Tavi will now be the most common procedure uh, in the USA for a valve. And he took us through all the different trials, partner 1B versus inoperable patients, partner 1A versus high risk, partner 2A versus intermediate and partner 3 versus low risk. And he did very importantly tell us to know the data. Uh, and what does that mean? Well, that means that, that very few of these have long-term follow-up. None of them have bicuspid valves in them. A lot of them are going right down to, the, to these very... Uh, sort of young age groups, these low SDS scores, the partner three SDS scores only 1.9%. The average age is only 73%. So when you're getting to things that low, you really need to know long-term data, not short-term, because these people are going to live a long time. And that is a worry about these studies. So he moved on to talk about Thomas Modine's uh, 37 center a study. Uh, and in this study, it looked at 198 explants of a TAVI. Now, I'm sure you've had a lot of cardiologists say, um, well, you know, well, we'll, we'll go for this low risk patient and do a TAVI because, you know, if it doesn't work, uh, you can fix it with an operation. But these 188, 198 cases really tell us that it is not a low risk operation to remove a TAVI uh, and do an operation. So they documented this 15%, one in seven needed a root replacement. So it was so difficult to get the TAVI out. Uh, I watering 50% of patients needed a concomitant cardiac procedure. Procedure. Now, to me, that means they've missed out on another cardiac procedure, whether that be a graft, whether that be uh, maze or AF surgery, we don't know. But, you know, there's a big alarm bell there. And then really shockingly, the mortality is high. We're talking 9 to 16% in people. These, these are STS risk 4 to 5% patients and one in seven had a pacemaker. So, so Thomas Modine's talk was all about, don't just assume if a TAVI fails, you can just get in there and sort it out. Uh, so Tom then moved on to MitraClip and again, I was surprised at the figures. My God, 10,000 put in in 2019, uh, a steady rise since 2014, which means there have been over 100,000 MitraClip implants. He interestingly told us the history that uh, the first MitraClip was 1997, which is only two years after a TAVI. But the RCTs have lagged way behind. There has, in fact, only been one RCT with surgical patients as a control. All the others have been against, uh, against conservative medical management or cohort studies. So that's a big worry. 
And, uh, and in the Everest 2, which was that uh, a randomized one against surgery, it was small. It was you know, a quarter of the size of, of the TAVI studies and only in the very high-risk patients. But when he moved on to uh, Keti Vitanova's outcomes of surgery after the mitroclip fails, well, that was when my eyes popped out. So the medium interval of uh, mitroclip to surgery was only four months. So clearly there have been some big problems uh, with these mitroclips. This was 18 centers, 173 patients, and virtually all of them needed a replacement. Remember, these people are very likely to have uh, been repairable. So the average age was 73, the SDS score was 5. These are not high-risk patients, uh, but uh, virtually all of them ended up getting a mitral valve replacement. Again, nearly half of them had another procedure, concomitant surgery. So what is being missed out? Uh, when they're having their mitroclips and I wateringly again one in seven died having an operation to fix a problem with the mitroclips so this is really concerning uh, and Tom Wen finishes it by saying know your data get involved with the cardiologist but do point this out and make sure you get in front of patients so well done Tom so I walked out with my avatar and started walking around the conference. It was fantastic. You could uh, chat to other people. You could see their names on their heads. They didn't look much like them in 3D, in, in real life. But, you know, it really did feel like being at a conference. You know, I even got that anxiety of, oh, my God, I've got to get to the next auditorium. So it was so realistic. But uh, if you do go back, uh, if you register, and uh, there is an amazing media center. And, and by amazing, amazing media Media Center. I really mean it because normally you just see a blank list of all the lectures, but this has been beautifully broken down into most popular, into thoracic, cardiac, all sorts of things. It's so easy to navigate. You know, I think every conference from now on is going to have to have a virtual center like this. AATS lookout, STS lookout. If you don't do your conference like EATS just did, you know, you are not going to be as successful. This is the future. So well done again. So uh, let's take uh, the most popular by view. So this is voted by you, the EATS audiences. And it was a quite a wacky one. So Radoslav Litinowicz from from Poland uh, did a talk that said, uh, why should cardiac surgeons occlude the left atrial appendage percutaneously? Uh, yeah, really interesting. So he said that in his country, uh, and according to the guidelines, you can only put an atriclip uh, during your cardiac surgery on a patient uh, if they cannot have anticoagulation. So if that's contraindicated, you know, which is rare. So actually, in his country, and I'm sure in many countries, then these patients should be having an epicardial or endocardial procedure uh, to occlude their left atrial appendage. So, so they've got together a really good database of patients that they've done this on as surgeons with no cardiologists involved. 217 patients, uh, they had a 98.8% success with the endocardial route and 95% with the epicardial route. Uh, they only had six life-threatening complications. Now that's pretty scary to somebody like me who doesn't do this. Um, they had four tamponades and one aortic damage. But think about it the other way. Wait a sec, this is cardiac surgeons doing this. This is not cardiologists. So if a cardiac surgeon gets tamponade, they're just going to open the chest and sort it. So actually, maybe he's right. Maybe we should be doing all the appendage occlusions percutaneously. Good idea. So he finishes it saying, yes, we can and yes, we should. Uh, and actually, that is something I've never heard before. So well done, Radoslav. 
One thing I really look forward to at EACS is the Techno College, and I really thought that they would not be able to uh, emulate this at the virtual conference, but my God, did they hit this out the park. They did a fantastic load of a job of, of Live in a Box series, uh, and the one that really caught my eye was totally endoscopic uh, AVR with something called the RAM device by Antonius Pitsis uh, in Greece. So what is the RAM device? Well, they do a beautiful mini a mini avr they do a second intercostal space about a three centimeter incision i'd say uh fem fem bypass and uh, using fully endoscopic instruments looking endoscopic on a tv screen and uh, and a great job so they open the aorta uh, but what is the thing that stops us all from doing this well it's because it's so difficult to put the stitches in uh, you can cut the valves out and you can clean up the annulus but putting those stitches in is a nightmare but whoa look at this device the ram device it looks like they've taken basically a stapler off your desk uh, kind of turned it 90 degrees but the stapler does has got two pins on it and it does two stitches to make a horizontal mattress with pletchets in the annulus so you just fire it bring it out and put it on a valve ring and then when you're outside they've got this second device called the so easy same thing on the valve bam 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 it looked like it took him 10 minutes to stitch in this proper biological valve and what's more you could probably do it with a mechanical valve great job that looks fantastic so check that out uh, in the techno college and there were loads more live in a box pictures and i certainly got nervous watching it uh, really emulating what you feel at techno college so back out we go, having a wander around EACTS, uh, looking down that program, and uh, I don't know about you, but if, if something on the program says, my case is the worst when the heart falls apart, I can't not look at that session. Oh my God. Well, Gloria Ferber from Germany uh, tells us about a case. A uh, 67-year-old patient uh, has an acute STEMI, Intermax 3, ejection fraction 20%, severe MR, severe TR, uh, CKD stage 3, and what's more, they'd had a brain tumour in the past. Uh, it gets worse than that. They've got a, a biventricular pacing device that gets endocarditis. they got positive blood cultures. They bring the patient in. They, they've got vegetations on the leaves, so they take them out, uh, and the patient starts declining over the next few days. The heart team says you need an LVAD, a tricuspid valve repair, and we'll do a PCI to start with. So, so there they go. They bring the patient into theatre. They do an annuloplasty. That went well. Then they start putting the LVAD in. So as they start stitching the LVAD ring in to the left ventricle, they start putting some stitches in. They start ripping out. They get some Teflon. They start ripping out. They put more felt stitches in. They start ripping out. Oh dear, they are stitching this ring into an infarcted left ventricle. They are stitching into dead muscle. What are you going to do now? Well, they gave us three options. First option, give up. I think I would have given up, but then maybe that's why I don't work in Germany in this amazing unit. The second option was to, to open up the ventricle and stitch the LVAD ring onto the mitral 
uh, annulus. Oh my god, I've never even heard of that before. But the third option, which is what they did, was to completely reconstruct the whole left ventricular free wall as if it was a VSD rupture. So they took out the ring, they made a big hole in the left ventricle, they took this huge patch, uh, stitched it to the uh, around the, the annuluses, uh, and, uh, and then basically from inside put a huge patch round to come outside, put the ring on it, but then also did another massive patch on the outside and they call it a sandwich repair uh, and they put the ring in the patient survived and they finished with a beautiful picture of this 67 year old lady with her vad outside one year later looking absolutely brilliant well done to them unbelievable and well done so check that out if you're uh, if you've got a chance uh, so, a few little things wandering around. I cannot resist one of David Taggart's fantastic talks. Uh, and he did a talk, Beta Not For Every Surgeon, where he just reminds us that the uh, art trial that he led is the world's biggest randomized interventional trials on coronary arteries. 30,000 patient years of follow-up where they randomized uh, patients to bilateral internal mammaries or single internal mammaries. And they published this uh, in the New England Journal of Medicine. Uh, and well done. I mean, it's a phenomenal job. Now, he will admit himself that uh, his study was pretty much wrecked by the crossover. 14% of people randomized to bilateral internal mammaries actually crossed over to single mammaries. Uh, and actually, 22% of single mammary artery patients then got a second arterial graft. So, he had a big problem, and uh, but he presented some really interesting data. Patients survived longer uh, if they had done more than 50 beta operations as surgeons. Uh, again, showing volume mix is really, really important in our world. Uh, very interestingly, he showed us that a a skeletonized bilateral internal mammary arteries has the same wound complication as pedicle single mammary artery in his group. So people saying, you know, I don't use Beamer because of the mediastinitis rate, mediastinitis rate, uh, you're wrong, uh, you know, as long as you skeletonize. And actually, although his study uh, didn't show significance in the intention to treat, if you actually look at the data of as treated, Beamer versus uh, single mammary, there's a huge difference. Uh, in mortality uh, and the difference becomes apparent from two years. So well done David, it's a really interesting study. Uh, I highly recommend you check that out. I've talked all cardiac uh, so far, but yep, uh, EACS is a cardiothoracic uh, conference, so I had a little look at the thoracic side as well, and again went into the Techno College and my eyes popped out once more when the amazing ex-president Arino Rendina from Italy, very casually in his own office in a t-shirt, described his right upper lobectomy, resecting the superior vena cava and doing a carinal pneumonectomy. Oh my God, uh, it was fantastic. Uh, really, really casual, really calm. Uh, he did this beautiful uh, bovine conduit round a syringe and he stapled it to make a beautiful tube. Uh, he dissected out really nicely. Out it all came, put it back together as if nothing had happened and finishes off with a fantastic uh, photograph of him next to the patient. And actually, this is an old case of his and this, and he's got a beautiful CT of the patient 16 years later, cancer-free. 
Fantastic. Well done, Arino. So that's the EACS conference. Uh, phenomenal. Uh, I take my hat off we to EACS and everyone. I cannot imagine the amount of work it's uh, that's gone into uh, creating this virtual world. And as I say, uh, check out EACS Live if you want to have a look. So just two more pieces of news uh, for this podcast, then we're done. So two things I wanted to talk to you about. Uh, and the first one is pectus surgery. It's a bit niche, but uh, in the United Kingdom, the National Health Service has taken pectus surgery off the NHS. Um, they evaluate uh, many things to see what's good value for money and what isn't, and they thought that pectus surgery is not good value for money. Uh, we all think that they really rushed this. Uh, they, they did their evaluation based on only six studies, uh, and basically the six studies all show benefit, including Hans Pilegaard's outstanding study where he did CPEXs before and after in 49 patients and compared them to 27 controls. They excluded that paper. 50 patients or more, they said, in a 10-year space. So they rejected every single paper as being poor quality. So in the UK, you can't do pectus on anybody, including the severest patients with the worst breathlessness. We now have a, a, a decent group of people that are there. They're breathless. They've got severe Haller indexes, and yet they cannot get help with the National Health Service. What do you think? Uh, I think it's a scandal. We all think it's a scandal. And uh, But what can we do about it? We need great studies. We need to prove if... You didn't think it was absolutely obvious that somebody with a squashed heart from pectus needs an operation to relieve it. Can you help us? If you can, please get in contact below. And finally, for this uh, CTS Netbeat podcast, I just want to talk to you about uh, this amazing paper from Adam Hansen. Uh, this was in the April uh, annals of thoracic surgery, and he describes slipped rib syndrome. Now, I am putting my hand up. I will be absolutely honest. I did not learn about this in medical school. I did not learn about this in my cardiothoracic surgery exit exams. I learned about this from Adam Hansen six months ago. There is a syndrome where you become quite mobile and your 10th rib starts digging in underneath your 9th rib and starts rubbing on the intercostal nerve below. Well, what does it cause? Well, it causes right upper quadrant pain, left upper quadrant pain. Uh, this is quite severe pain. It's like a toothache, worse on movement uh, and goes right to your back. But the amazing thing about uh, Adam's paper are the patients. So he described 42 uh, patients uh, in his series but a huge number of them have been to multiple doctors and been dismissed and sent away. A quarter of his patients had had a cholecystectomy that hadn't made any difference, and a shocking 10% had tried to take their own life. But the most amazing thing about this condition I knew nothing about that causes right upper quadrant pain or left upper quadrant pain is that he has given us a technique which is just two or three stitches, stitching the 10th rib to the 9th, and it is instantly fixed. 10 minutes of surgery cures these patients and yet I didn't know about this condition until a year ago so I shudder to think how many patients like this there are out there so if you see somebody like that maybe get in contact with Adam Hansen and certainly uh, if you teach medical students or you teach anybody uh, let them know about this condition. So that's it for this CTS Net Beat. I hope you've enjoyed it. Uh, I certainly have. Uh, my name's Joel Dunning uh, and I'm sure you'll all be pleased to hear that Nikki Stamp will be back to do some of these in the future. I might do a few of them uh, but uh, she'll do a great job too. Now do remember that you should subscribe to this podcast and give it a five-star rating so that we can go up the orders. Uh, also um, 
put some comments below just so I know uh, what you're thinking about the world of cardiothoracic surgery. Maybe suggest a few things for us to chat about and uh, also subscribe subscribe to Jans. Jans is our journal and news scan where we all go around looking for all the best papers and we tell you about them so that you don't have to go through all the journals. And if you see any good papers, send them to us. So that's all we've got time for and thank you from me and everyone here at CTSnet. <laughs>